AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, I heard you have a story about uh, sysadmin for Fin7. Yeah, this one's kind of interesting. So in 2018, three of the members of Fin7 were arrested. Fin7 is sort of a code name for a financially motivated hacking group. So what happened recently is just this past Wednesday, uh, one of the members was actually, um, he actually pled guilty. So he's going to be the first member of Fin7 to go down for the crimes, you know, in a U.S. court. Wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and so the articles are all covering basically what came out during, you know, uh, what happened in court. They're talking about what he had done, what he had pled guilty to. And it's an interesting story. So let's back up a couple years to uh, 2015. This guy, and I'm going to butcher his name, I apologize, but Fader Olyeksevich Hlader um, was hired by this, this company, Combi Security. And Combi Security made itself look like it was a legitimate pen testing firm. You know, they say they have all sorts of clients all over the world. They do security services. And it turns out what they are is a front for a criminal group. So they were doing hacking, uh, but they didn't have the permission to be doing that hacking. And they were, you know, doing the same kind of things you'd expect any talented group to do. Phishing, social engineering, installing malware, pivoting through people's networks. Uh, but their focus really seemed to be on uh, point-of-sale systems and financial data so that they could benefit from what they broke into. And there were a couple big-name companies who were victims of Fin7. Mm. So basically, this guy's gone down. There are two other folks who are, I guess, going to go to trial soon, probably going to go down as well. Uh, but Fin7 hasn't gone away. Right. There are new owners. Somebody else is running that same operation now. Kind of shows that they're aware of the different techniques that researchers kind of employ to to you know, stop them to def def defend against their activities, but they're they're very uh, you know very motivated to keep uh, doing what they do. So they're always looking for new ways. But it seems like this guy was hired into Combi Security under the understanding he'd be providing IT for them, and by the end of it, it looks like he was doing things with full knowledge that no, this is not actually right. a pen testing company. Right. This is a criminal group, and so he was actually like a go-between between the higher-ups and the underlings. He was you know, creating accounts and, and doing IT that was clearly for things like managing stolen credit card data. Right. So by the end, it was clear to him what was going on, but obviously he didn't like step away from right, it. Right, he right. just continued to make money, and he didn't make from what I can see here, he didn't make all that much money out of it either. Like $100,000 was a to sum total of what he was paid to be IT for this criminal enterprise, which so far um, law enforcement says has caused over $100 million in damages across the board and may have massive amounts of money in the bank somewhere. So interesting story. Um, I guess the upshot is be aware of who you're being hired by and crime also doesn't pay. Like there, there was a, the article that I read about it said, you know, these are the things that he noticed were not happening and should have been like a, a tip off that, hey, my company isn't who they say they are. Things like if you're a pen testing firm, there should be contracts that say that right. the company has hired Combi Security. There should be like reports or recommendations that come back after a pen test is done. That's like the whole point. Like you broke in and you show them where the flaws are. And no, I guess they're just breaking in. Um, and then typically, if you, if you are a pen testing firm, another thing you do is you, you safeguard the data that you've stolen or the things that you've learned about your clients. Right. And that's all encrypted and kept separate. And there are, there are things you do to protect the things you've learned about your, your clients' vulnerabilities. 
which were not being done. Right. So any one of those three things should have tipped off this guy that the company he was working for was not who they said they were. I saw a post and I don't know if they were making a joke, but it was like one of the benefits was there. They would provide bail money and stuff like that. Oh my God. <laughs> That's not the right way to do it. No. Right. no, I mean, if you're a pen tester, you, you get your permission up front. You don't get bail money to get you out right, of jail when right. you get caught. That's, right. That's backwards. <laughs>
creating an iframe using some JavaScript. So if you could get somebody to go to um, a malicious website that had this iframe embedded in it, it was possible to, to grab the username and password that LastPass had last used. The upshot of this is that, you know, some limited amount of credentials might have been compromised. There's no evidence this has actually happened, but it was also sort of a, a limited thing. It would not have been possible for the attackers to grab all of the credentials that you store in, in LastPass, and typically people store more than one password in, in LastPass. Um, so there's, there's limiting factors as well. Anyway, uh, LastPass fixed it quickly, for which I am very grateful. Um, but it just is a reminder that these password managers are software like any other, and they can have bugs. Is there like a malicious, uh, like malicious JavaScript running on a on a web on a site that you have to visit to for the exploit to to work? It turns out that if you can get the JavaScript to execute uh, another function. Yeah. FTD get parent or frame parent URL, it'll just use the last one rather than than repopulated uh, for the current frame or for the current tab. So, yeah. if you take a look at the um, the Project Zero bug report that Taviso filed for, it actually is pretty detailed as to how the bug works. And it's surprisingly little amount of code that you need to get it done, too. Right, right. It was, you know, just a, you know, a dozen lines of code, and you got it. I was going to say, the other thing is, the limitation is, it's one account. Now, whether or not that's your, your Gmail or your, you know, your corporate VPN, not from your corporate VPN, but like, or it could be like, you know, I don't know what, something that, that really doesn't matter to you at all. That's right. a complete roll of the dice for an attacker, um, but, right. you know you do enough of these, you're bound to find credentials for right. something valuable. Like a bank bank account or something right. like that. Yeah. Right. The best option where possible is to turn on two-factor. Uh, then just having the password isn't sufficient to get you in. Uh, so even if they did get it, they've only got half of what they need to authenticate. Uh, what this will give you is the last username and password um, that LastPass, you know, used to populate uh, a login form someplace. On the other hand, if the site you're logging into requires a YubiKey in addition to a username and password, then right. yeah, that will help in that right. scenario. Right. 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 And that's right because I've got two-factor turned on for LastPass itself. You know. Um, but this is after you've already authenticated the LastPass. So it's, you know, the, the credentials that are at risk are not your LastPass credentials. It's the credentials to some website that you use LastPass. I'm kind of curious why the, the authors would have cached any values within the, uh, the plugin itself. Like, it seems like a, a design decision you'd want to stay away from if you right. could. Well, yeah, and it's, so it's a question of how long it, it remembers the stuff um, versus having to go back and and repopulate it, but that's yeah. It was it was clearly a, a programming mistake, and they have patched it. They patched it quickly, 
for which I am grateful. So, yeah. But you're right. You'd think they should fill it in and then throw it away and not keep it around in memory. Um, and I assume that that's what they're doing now. That's part of the update, right? <laughs> or they're at least forcing the the call to the, you know, to do pop-up register to get the new info. All right. Well, thanks for uh, for bringing this one to us. Yes, Jim. Even though there's a vulnerability, it's still important to continue using these different types of, uh, you know, password keepers. So, Manish, I understand you've got a story about a another Trojan that's using Facebook and YouTube to try to avoid detection. Yeah, that's right. Um, I thought this was pretty interesting. So this company called Cofence Intelligence, they identified this phishing campaign. Um, and I guess right now it's really just targeting the uh, Brazilian population uh, in Brazil. Um, so I guess it once uh, if you click on this malicious uh, your, um, uh, attachment, um, you get this uh, what's called the Astaroth Trojan. And it uses like uh, YouTube profiles and Facebook posts um, kind of support the um, in code injection and the uh, uh, the C2 channel, like the C2 channel. Um, so the the malware uses it, it abuses what they're calling the living off the land binaries, and this like in this specific case, it's a Windows Management Instrumentation Console, right? So it's a kind of a it's a legitimate application. Um, so it kind of evades AV and all of that because it's you know it's expected to be running. Um, so then, using the uh, command line interface with WMIC, it downloads uh, and installs a malicious payload, you know, just in the background. Um, and then, um, you know, at that, and, and then at that point, it, uh, it, you know, does some other things. But uh, this campaign started out with like three different types of emails. Uh, they were all written in Portuguese, right? So that supports that, for whatever reason, that's really the the, the population that they're targeting and. Like I said, once the once the victim they they click on that attachment, um, there's like an HTML file that downloads a zip archive, <laughs> and the zip archive contains like this malicious LNK file. Um, so then the LNK file, you know, downloads this JavaScript code from what they're called. It's a Cloudflare workers, mm -hmm. which I've never heard of, but I guess they're um, I guess it's a JavaScript execution environment, um, and then um, you know. Some of the, like two of the DLL files that are downloaded together, like they join them together to create a, like a legitimate program and, and, in, um, and it puts it in a, like a program files Internet Explorer directory, um, which is, and it's like the program's called extexport.exe. So that runs this malicious, you know, that, it's a legitimate program, but it runs this, uh, like it's sideloaded with this malicious uh, code. And it uses a process called uh, process. It uses a technique called process hollowing, mm -hmm. and it's basically using um, you know one of the legitimate legitimate programs that are in a suspended state um, to kind of just kind of takes over um, and takes takes out the code and injects it with the malicious code. So they're using like uninst000.exe, svchost.exe, and userinit.exe, right? So those are all you know, legitimate processes that we expect to see. Um, so, you know, another way of, of it trying to evade being detected. If you're, say, trying to protect your home network, I imagine that you've got home users, you know, friends, family, who are going to want to hit those websites. 
if you're at a company, it may be a little easier for you to say with your policy, we don't allow social media sites, we don't allow video sites, and block them outright. It may be possible for you to block those sites outright, but there's still legitimate reasons why, say, your marketing or social media team may want to be able to hit those sites. But the C2 channels, to me, was the most interesting, right? So, you know, eventually it'll reach out, the, the infected machine will reach out to, you know, a YouTube uh, channel or a Facebook profile and it'll grab, you know, I guess the contents, the configuration data is, is, is uh, posted, uh, you know, on these YouTube channels and Facebook posts and uh, it's basically encoded, uh, Base64 encoded, but then there's like a custom encryption that's on top of it, um, you know, so where I guess the malware has to grab that and then decode it, um, unencrypt it, and then that's how it gets the C2 channel. So the malware, basically, it's just like an information stealer. It grabs uh, financial information, stored passwords in the browser, uh, email client uh, credentials, SSH credentials, things like that. And then um, it basically encrypts it with two layers of encryption and then sends that in an HTTPS post uh, back to the C2. Um, so I thought that part of it was pretty interesting. And it's, you know, a lot of these... Uh, attackers as the security professionals um, get better at detecting and preventing you know the attackers pivot to something else that's brand new that you know that's, that's you know and they're getting very good at finding ways that are even harder to detect sure um, you know how many things can you possibly monitor you know you're typically you're you're monitoring your employees like the activities that they're doing or wh whoever's on your network and the infrastructure <laughs> you know now you have to monitor you know if your company allows or your you know at your home your you go to YouTube or Facebook uh, like even that can be uh, I you mean, know. at home, you know, right. pretty much most pretty people much don't most have people. outbound filtering. So. Right, right. And YouTube and Facebook are some of the top sites on right. the web, so right. chances are you're going to be going to them regularly. Right. That's why this is a valuable way for an attacker to do this, because it's, it's, it's going to get through. Right. That, right. and it's going to be encrypted. And then if you actually wanted to somehow take a look at every single set of comments or, or text that's within a, a YouTube profile or, God forbid, a Facebook profile. Right, right. Which is nothing but text for, and photos for days. Right. Like, it's going to be very hard to suss this out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the, you know, one of the issues, right? Well, I, I was thinking one of the interesting features of this, and, and Manish, you kind of mentioned it when you were uh, going through it, was the use of the, uh, the Cloudflare workers domain. Uh, which was something that I wasn't all that familiar with until I, I read this. But you're, you're probably not going to block JavaScript that's coming through Cloudflare right. because so wow. many sites use it to, you know, to front their domains to, you know, do DDoS protection and whatever, content distribution. So um, hiding your malicious JavaScript there I thought was also kind of an interesting you know, right now it's really just targeting Brazil, but if, you know, I'm assuming, depending on how successful it is, it wouldn't be that hard for them to, uh, you know, to pivot to other locations. And obviously, if these guys have success with it, somebody else will duplicate right. it. Right. Some right. Words. right, right. Not only these, act these actors, but, you know, everyone else once they, you know, hear about this. Ultimately, I think some responsibility falls on those sites to keep an eye on how people are using the service. They're already doing it now for you know, explicit content or, or other things that human beings may not want to look at. 
uh, but they may want to consider looking for things that look like automatic bot traffic. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So this is the top 10 most probe ports for the last week. You can see the top four slots have not changed, which is uh, interesting. So 23 TCP is Telnet. Um, that's been the king for a while, followed by 445, which is SMB. Again, those two have been up there forever. 22 TCP is SSH, and 80 ICMP is Ping. Uh, 443 is just um, HTTPS. It could be a lot of different things going on on that port. It's kind of hard to tell, but that's up two slots. 3389 is remote desktop protocol, hasn't moved. 81 TCP is an alternate web port. Sometimes we see it associated with certain IoT vulnerabilities. 8080, again, is a web port, usually IoT vulnerabilities, things like that. Sometimes people are scanning for, uh, for proxies on that port as well. That's up four. Uh, 8545 is Ethereum GF daemon, and that's, uh, that's been a popular one for at least the last year. And then in 10th place, we have 80 TCP, which is plain old HTTP. Taking a look at the most sources probing in the last week, this is number of sources, individual endpoints that are sending out traffic, not the number of probes. This is more indicative of a large botnet. And surprisingly, a lot of these slots simply have not changed. Uh, 445, 23, 80, 8080, and 443 we talked about on the last slide, those are all in their same spots from last week, which is actually kind of stunning. Uh, 1433 TCP, that is Microsoft SQL Server, is up five points uh, places. 5431 TCP is the UPnP port for certain Broadcom-based uh, devices. Uh, Linksys and Belkin in particular, I think, have been called out for having a, a UPnP uh, server running on that port. 80ICMP is ping. 5555 is Android Remote Debug Bridge. And 00 at the bottom there is Echo Reply. So those are responses to ping. SMB, as you can see, the last 90 days really has not changed that much in terms of scan sources. It's gone up and down just a little bit. Um, but still, um, you can see those, the daily cycles going up and down, but overall it hasn't changed that much. Usually I zoom out to, to 365 days when I do this port, but I mean, it really wasn't that interesting, to be honest with you. It seems like this is going to stay up there for quite some time. Uh, Telnet seems to be relatively stable as well. Uh, you can see back in, in August we had a couple of spikes, but really recently it hasn't been changing that much. And the, the baseline for the last couple of weeks. So anyway, you know, not, not too much going on here. It seems to be trending downwards in the last week or so, um, but still holding its, its top, of the, top of the charts. 1433, you can see a couple of spikes here. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to retrieve the, the source IPs that are um, responsible for it. But um, you can see we did have a spike somewhere around 120 times 10, 10 to the 6. And yeah, port 8080 we also saw show up in the reports. Um, it's pretty spiky. I mean, honestly, the baseline was much bigger about you know, a month or so ago back in August. You could see that huge rise, that swell of the wave there. Um, but recently, you know, it, it could just be that you know, it's still a decent amount of traffic, but not not quite as much in the way of uh, concerted scanning traffic. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.